This is No Love in War, a story of Christian nationalism. Awful smoke for a Written by Valerie H. Hobbs. Read by the author. With original music by Jonathan and Caroline Hodges. Originally published in open access print form by Mayfly Books. Chapter 25 Women tend to find Arminianism more emotionally appealing than the cold precision of classic Reformed Orthodoxy. Consequently, since girly men pastors want to appeal to women, the most vocal and influential members of the church, they preach sermons with all the spiritual nourishment of a pixie sticks. Remember that colored sugar candy in a straw? Brian Abshire, Girly Men in the Pulpit, or The Feminization of the American Clergy, in Feminism in Family, Church, and Culture, Chalcedon Magazine, 1st of February, 1998. I often advise young brides who are traveling during their first weeks or months of marriage to start homemaking in a hotel, even if they are there for only a night, rather than groaning about having to wait so long to have a home. How? Your own cloth, your own candlestick, just one rose or daffodil is enough to make a difference. You will be surprised how much difference it makes to have done something to make a room your home, even for a night. Edith Schaefer, The Hidden Art of Homemaking, 1971 Women who are truly devoted to patriarchal authority, part and parcel as it is to Christian dominionism, might surprise some with how consistent they can be in the demands they place on themselves and the men in their lives. Even at cost to themselves, they will defend a man's position as leader. And, if he fails in his duty, they will often be the first to criticize him. For those who have not spent much time in such a community, the reality of women's frankness in this misogynist context can be unexpected. Some of this no-nonsense style is driven by self-loathing, since, in such a community, certain expressions of emotion, grief, for instance, are considered ostentatiously feminine, a sign of gendered weakness. One woman from my church school once rebuked her husband for crying during a period of self-doubt. Be a man, she reminded him thus of his place, an act he expressed gratitude for. What was he thinking, being so open and so vulnerable? Who was he, a woman? Other women I know have bluntly asked men who've initiated a casual conversation with them to state their intentions. Well, do you want to marry me or not? If so, like a man, state it clearly and now, so we can get on with what we're here for. 
Otherwise, no point in standing here talking. Move along. Nothing to see or do here. For a while, my friend Leah developed an interest in the eldest of two brothers who attended our school, sons of another local pastor. I tried to remember when they made their entrance, but I can't say exactly, only that the first time I saw them was in our catechism class, and that when they came, our headmaster commented on the name of the younger son. Pay attention, everyone, to the meaning of his name. God is indeed with us. The two brothers were close in age, the eldest in Leah's class above mine, and the youngest in my tiny year group. They were a bit mysterious to us, first because their parents had immigrated from Europe, and they all spoke to each other in a language foreign to us, and second because their parents had them so occupied with various activities during the week that we rarely saw them outside of school. There was also the fact of their alien behavior. At times they even seemed to be poking fun at us, though without any malice. The eldest brother, Leo, delivered a lengthy, tongue-in-cheek monologue to our speech class about the benefits of regular swimming, including a lengthy argument in favor of the magnificent Speedo is hydrodynamic appeal. And don't forget, ladies, it's also easy on the eyes. At this point, he gave us all a quick wink. When one of our Bible teachers erected a camera on top of a tripod, then switched it on without our knowledge to record our every movement, Leo chose the desk at the back of the class, directly in the camera's line of vision. On the day, None of us observed what he got up to in class while the teacher was out of the room. He kept it to himself. It was only later, when the teacher turned on the video he'd secretly recorded, prepared to surprise and humiliate us, that there was Leo, center screen, flexing each bicep one by one, then kissing it, disrupting and redirecting our teacher's bitter, humiliating intentions into a comedy act. We students laughed and clapped, and Leo took a bow, while the teacher wryly switched it off and told us all, to be quiet, will you just hush? And then there was the book report Leo's younger brother Alexander delivered in front of our English class. This was a time when a lot of we girls were reading Christian historical romance novels. Stories of young and virginal Puritan women, pioneers, or Victorians, all whose beauty and unparalleled modesty and chastity eventually shamed and tamed some rogue of a man, all set against the golden backdrop of a more noble era, when men and women, masters and slaves, all knew their place. Fundamentalist porn that genre that more than one scholar has identified as one of the greatest ironies existing among a people who claim to desire the absolute outline of all pornography. Texts whose climb to climax with overtaking of the prone, vulnerable, and usually female body, women under tutelage, 
women in non-consensual bondage, a succession of moments of enthrallment and revelation, whose excessive and intense spirituality and visual imagery evoke so much implied sexual imagery. Alexander elected to choose one of these for his oral book report, complete with a dramatic reading of one of the most erotically tense passages in the book. The class descended into total chaos. I laughed so hard I could no longer see through my tears. Finally, the teacher told him to stop. That's enough, Alexander. We get the idea. Alexander spun other minutiae of my life in other likewise memorable ways. I'd for some years now been fighting bitterly with my mother about my clothing, my hair, my pastimes. And in the most recent clash, she'd vetoed my choice of school shoes, a pair of clunky black Doc Martens, and instead bought for me a pair of black ankle boots. The first day I wore them to school, very reluctantly, Alexander declared them the best shoes he'd ever seen and began asking me to wear them every day. He called them my mini-boots, and often said before we parted ways at the end of the day, Wear those boots again tomorrow, Valerie, won't you? I had no idea what to make of this barbless admiration from a boy. By then I suspected all such compliments and requests of having some ulterior motive which I tended to perceive only when it was too late. Yet with Alexander, there was none of that. His comments, his conversation, any physical interaction we had, never invaded nor escalated. He seemed content enough in himself, and interested only in sharing this, in acknowledging and shoring up my own contentedness. I'm happy. So why shouldn't you be happy too? I feel good about myself. Why shouldn't you? There's enough in this world for us both, and then some. In this and many ways, these two brothers had a unique talent for being friends with nearly everyone. There were plenty among us who tried to level them, especially some of the boys tried at various points to put them in their place to bait them somehow, sometimes by mocking them for some superficial thing. But none of these petty quarrels registered. Whatever flippant thing anyone said or did seemed to roll off their backs like water. I sensed they were swimming through their days with us effortlessly, their eyes on some spectacular future horizon, while the rest of us splashed and floundered about uselessly pushing each other down in our desperation to avoid drowning. It's no wonder, then, that for quite a while, Leah set her sights on Leo. She liked the looks of his strong European jawline, she told me. She even went so far as to write him a letter stating her acknowledgement of his good qualities and asking him what his intentions might be. Indirectly, that is, so as not to challenge his own manly initiative. A bold move, nonetheless, and one I wouldn't have dared. Leah asked me to drop some hints with Leo here and there 
to see what I could find out as well. By this time, Leo and his brother had learned about my first formal after-school job, a market research center where I'd been working for nearly a year by then, and they joined me there. The pay wasn't anything to call home about, but we got regular bonuses under the table from our corrupt manager, who handed us wads of cash in exchange for completing surveys of all sorts. Whenever it came time to tell our boss which hours we could work, the brothers would scribble their names next to every available hour. In the summer and during other school holidays, they worked full-time, even overtime when they could get away with it, though never on Sundays. One day a week, like me, they set aside all fraud and embezzlement, all our naive participation in organized crime. Before I'd secured this job, I'd applied unsuccessfully for an entry-level position at several other places of business. Finally, I'd been offered this particular job, as I'd shrugged nonchalantly when the lecherous old man who'd interviewed me on the spot asked me how I'd handle being rudely insulted by the general public, then proceeded to give me a graphic demonstration of what that might be like. I wasn't phased. I'd been around predators subtler than he most of my life, and there was something oddly comforting about how explicitly corrupt he and his workmates were, how obvious and unabashed their deviance. Accustomed as I was to so much hypocrisy, the transparency of my co-workers' criminality, and to the absence of any invocation of God from their lips, All these I found refreshing. And so gradually, after the brothers joined me, I too increased my own hours, eager to spend more time in their company, in this altogether different space, puzzling over its ease, wondering what these brothers were working towards, what possible future they had glimpsed. While here I was, only working for petty cash and to satisfy my parents, who would allow me to get a driver's license only on the understanding I'd also secure a regular job. And so I began to get to know the brothers beyond the boundaries of our school. Perhaps on the privilege of all this time together, I managed to convince the brothers to come to a party one afternoon after school, a casual get-together that some of us had organized. There'll be a pool. I said slyly, knowing Leo would find that impossible to resist. He couldn't, and for several hours that one time only, a small group of us assembled at the gigantic mansion of a certain unpopular and awkward boy in the class below us. His house not only had a pool, it also had an elevator and numerous lavishly decorated rooms for a mere family of three. The brothers arrived and swam the length of the pool over and over in their speedos. We all laughed together and snacked on whatever we found in the pristine marble kitchen. We watched a film in the basement cinema and toured the many rooms. By the time the sun went down, someone had activated the house's impressive sound system 
Some lively music started up in the cavernous living room. Alexander took my hand with a wide grin, and for some unknown amount of time, we danced and we danced and we danced. As soon as a song ended, I'd stopped to catch my breath. Then the music began again, and Alexander would reach for my hand. And so it went, the rest of the night, until late. I laughed, I smiled and moved in the refuge of his company, a security I'd not know again truly until a long time later, a shelter I would only ever be able to appreciate again, even to recognize, only because of Alexander. As it happened, Leo wasn't interested in Leah. Perhaps it was more he wasn't interested in any permanent link to our community, and somehow communicated this to her. Yet I remember his words were such that he didn't humiliate her, or even make her feel she'd been let down. She was disappointed, but without a break in fellowship. Then, before we knew it, it was the end of the school year. Alexander's parents arranged for him to graduate early, the same year as his brother, a year ahead of me. The day of their leaving, they waved me into the church's cry room, where they stood waiting in their blue robes. Come take a picture with us, Valerie, they coaxed me. Afterwards, some of us were congregating downstairs in the school's central room that space where I'd played endless games of chess all those years ago, where my ballet teacher had beaten us all into submission, where Luke had bitten my earlobe, where on occasion our pastor had emerged from his office to rebuke someone's language, someone's volume, someone else's tone. On some impulse, Alexander asked if I wanted to swing around, as we'd done a few times before. He offered his hands. One last time? I held out my own. We grasped hold of each other's wrists. He spun me around the room, around and around, higher and higher. The room tilted and blurred. The building disintegrated as I circled. We laughed together one last time, this his final act of transformation. And that was that. The brothers were off. That next year, after Leah had started university locally, I noticed one Sunday she was dressed much more stylishly than usual. I commented on this, and she took me aside to tell me what she wasn't ready for others to hear. That a certain well-respected young man at our church, already graduated from university and stably employed, had asked her father for permission to court her. His first edict as her husband-in-waiting had been to insist that she immediately purchase an entirely new wardrobe using his credit card. By the end, with the explicit approval of her parents, she spent close to $3,000 on trousers, dresses, blouses, and shoes to satisfy her seemingly more sophisticated suitor. Also at his request, she wore these clothes to church, on dates, at any social occasion. 
She remade herself according to his requirements. I told her I was happy for her. I tried to feign excitement about her new style. This man throwing all that money at her feet. Yet I was empty and anxious. It seemed my friend no longer stood in front of me. Someone else was here in her place. It was not the clothes themselves, but where and how they'd come about. The claim they represented, not just on her body, but even mine. The signal they sent of the unacceptability of women's choices for ourselves. The necessity of yet more man-policing, man-dictation, man-preference, man-tuition. All this Leah embraced, and in all this we turned our faces opposite ways. She reaching eagerly beyond this particular courtship, which didn't last, to the next. This time with a younger man closely connected to our church, from a family as large as her own which did finally end in a wedding the summer before my senior year of university, marriage marking the demise of many relationships among us. I attended her wedding by myself. Going alone seemed right to me, a sort of subtle objection. I would navigate on my own. I would set apart other aspects of my life away from their watching eyes. Leo and Alexander attended too, though I didn't see them till afterwards. They arrived together, as they always seemed to do, and left quickly at the end, a seamless and fluid passing through, carrying no residue of our trouble as they left. We said hello to each other on the pavement outside the church, the two brothers and me. I remember their sunglasses their relaxed smiles, and then their exit, all so uncomplicated.
Just 